the leopard just sat there, froze, didn't move a muscle looking at us. Then suddenly it dropped down on all fours on its belly and it crept along the ditch and out of sight. And everyone just looked at each other in disbelief thinking, wow, was that real what we just saw? You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me, nothing like a dog's growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realize that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen and could these cats even be naturalizing without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Big Cat Conversations. It's the start of the new year, 2020. Happy New Year to everybody. For this episode, we are going to reflect on a series of incidents which happened in Spain, in Almeria, in 2016-17 and a bit beyond that. I was involved in contacting our guest and advising him for a while, so I was sort of sharing the experience on Skype at the time, and it's going to be really interesting to reflect on all of that now. And our guest is Peter J. Hughes, and Peter actually joins us on tour in Asia, and he's on the line from Komodo National Park just a week after watching Komodo Dragons. Peter, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure being on. Okay, and I know two or three weeks ago you were communing with tigers and you've uh, been seeing lots of wildlife on your travel, so lucky so-and-so. But um, can yeah. we, I think we'd better just get back to business and reflect on scenes from Spain, from Almeria in 2016. Can you sort of set the scene and what happened when you first got suspicious about some unusual animal being around? Yeah, well, I moved out to Spain, to Almeria in 2004. The thinking was, myself and my partner, who's an ecologist, was we were going to do a development project, but start from scratch and observe the whole process. So, you know, starting without water, without electricity, without mobile phone communications, and really with very little language in a very remote area. The thinking behind that was, rarely do people actually start from scratch. So we thought, well, we would go out there and restore this uh, 600-year-old building that we'd bought. So that's what we were doing. And we were many years into the project. We'd bought a place that was 10 kilometers inland from the nearest town. It had a small village community around it. But the actual building was separated from the village by about 200 meters. 
So we would have volunteers coming and stay with us and they were working on conservation projects. And then one night I went to bed and I woke up at about three in the morning after having a really strange dream. So I got out of bed and thought, well, I'll make myself a cup of tea and, you know, just see what's happening on the internet. So I sat down and all of a sudden I heard this dump on the roof. And I thought, what on earth is that? Because to get onto the roof, there's one part of it that's, that's only about two meters off the ground. So, but, and that's where I'd actually heard the sound. But then I started hearing footprints walking directly over the top of my head. Then they disappeared. So I got up, went to the front door, opened the front door, and there was this hell of a noise with a very large animal jumping over the top of my veranda, jumping down three meters, and then darting off. And all I saw was the shadow of it, and it was gone in an instant. That was the first event. Then after that, I had a sequence of other strange events. One of them was I came back to my house, and there was a hole in the hosepipe. And I looked at it, and water was leaking all over the garden. But the thing about the hole was, it's as if a, a, a claw had been in there and actually made a hole, And because the threads were actually pulled out, so you could actually see the loop where something had pulled it out. So that was one event. And then the following day, I had a puncture on my car tire. So I went and got it fixed, brought it back. And the following day, the same tire had a puncture again. And then we found claw marks in a bucket, um, which had water in it. And the way that the claw marks were was it was as if it had been sort of like lazily scratched in one part and then just dug in with great force, you know, through this thick plastic. And if you were going to do it with any kind of knife, it would be a real effort. And to have done it in such a way, it was really obvious it was a claw mark. So that's how it all began. Okay, and I remember you saying at the time, even just that very first noise on the roof, you almost instantly felt there's no other animal with the weight and the agility that can do that in this Mm -hmm. country. A, there's no animal around, indigenous, that can do that. And B, it just sounds like a cat in its agility and impact. And then you got the claw mark. So you were getting suspicious about what it was almost straight away, weren't you? Yeah, I've been involved with conservation, environment, national parks, etc. For, for many, many years since the 90s. So it immediately set my mind racing as to what it was. And, you know, it was cat that came up. Um, it was really the only possibility. And there was something also which was very specific for cats, and that was walking along the ledge. And that's why the noise disappeared sort of halfway along the roof. It, it actually then started walking along the ledge. Hmm. And then we started noticing paw marks around the property. Because it was gravel, it was not so easy to tell what they actually were. But they were just huge. You know, they were really large. And um, the dog behaviour was giving away something as well, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, living in such a location, you know, we had a collie dog who was very well trained, very, I mean, pretty much 50% wild, pretty much 50% domestic. He would warn us of snakes, of scorpions, of lizards in the house etc. So, I mean, he was really attuned to the environment. He would tell us, sometimes he'd refuse to go outside, he'd want to be particularly close to us. He was the type of dog, I mean, he never backed down to any other dogs, but he met his match with with this whatever it was, you know, this mysterious animal that was there. We thought, let's do a test, a weight test. Let's put the dog on the roof 
because we know the size of the dog and just see how that relates to the sound that we've heard before. So, I mean, with it being a flat roof, it's quite easy to put the dog there. He walked across the roof and it was less than half the weight. That's what we sort of related it to being at the time. So we knew that we were up against a very heavy animal that was heavier than the dog and heavier than a human. And the episodes then started happening very, very frequently. What happened was with the, um, I had some volunteers staying that were working on the projects. And of course, this was a lot more exciting than, ex- than they expected. You know, they were going to Spain and experiencing this wild cat odyssey happening. <laughs> um, it's more like a safari experience for them. But, you know, we, we used to sit out on the, the patio at night and sometimes we would just hear this thrashing around, you know, this charging that would be going on in random directions the light wasn't good enough for us to see exactly what it was. But sometimes we would see just a shadow going past and it was happening all the way around us. And there were two occasions where it actually charged us. We were sitting out there, you know, there were about six, seven of us, and it literally charged, charged towards us. Uh, but we were, we were on a higher level. So there was no way that it could actually get to us. But we got very worried. I mean, we grabbed chairs and basically ran in the house so when we talked about it afterwards, and there had actually been an event that had happened a couple of weeks before the cat had been on the roof. And that is my girlfriend at the time, she was Polish, and we'd seen a truck going behind the building, and that truck um, had scaffolding in it, which if that was in the UK, that would be completely normal. But in that particular part of Spain, they never use scaffolding for building. The only really real place that they actually have scaffolding is the local circus when that comes to town. So we'd seen the vehicle going out the back. We knew it was from the circus and there was an East European driving it, which my ex-girlfriend sort of figured out very quickly. And we sort of, you know, started to piece the pieces of, of what was going on together. And we then did some research and found out that the authorities had been checking licenses exotic animal licenses. And we found that they'd actually started in the north of the country around two, three weeks before these episodes began. Then the circus had moved into town. Then we'd seen the circus vehicle and then the cat instances. So we pieced it together that it was pretty much certainly the circus, although we couldn't prove it. Mm. And it was probably due to the fact that they didn't have a license. So there were various things that happened, but the local people, a lot of them didn't believe it. They'd only believe it if they actually saw it, whereas some of the local people had seen it. Like the goat herder? Yeah, the goat herder. Yeah, he had had his goats being attacked by it, and he'd sent his dogs after the cat, and the cat had run off. But the goat herder was a bit of a funny character, and, and people didn't really believe him. And so he was like, oh, you know, so he just referred to it as the pest. <laughs> And, you know, he said, oh, the pest has been after my goats again. And people just didn't really believe him at first because he was the first person actually to have a, an actual sighted experience with this. And then these episodes started happening to us. We had various people, probably in the early days, at least five or six of us that had actually heard it or seen the bits of evidence around. And so, I mean, it became a, a great activity, you know, for all the volunteers there to try and help piece together this puzzle. 
you did have, over the months, two or three volunteers who did see it very clearly and very well, and it was their views were consistent. And a couple of them didn't even mm-hmm. know that you hadn't even briefed them on that prospect of a cat being around, yet they came to you saying, Peter, do you know what I've just seen? You won't believe this, but I've just seen a black panther. Is that right? Well, one of the instances, I was actually in the middle of explaining it to the person who had just arrived during the day. And obviously, arriving to a remote house, the first thing you mention is just about the house. And by now, it got to the early evening. And it was like, oh, we forgot to mention, but we'll go into this. We have had some strange noises. We've seen some strange markings. You know, the goat herder believes that there's, you know, a wild cat here. We think there's a wild cat here, you know, and we were literally explaining it to him. And as we were explaining it, we saw it go past. And <laughs> and it was almost like, is that what you're talking about? And it's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, all the time you were, I mean, people have mixed emotions about them when they're visiting their property in, in Britain, because all kinds of things about, is it dangerous? I don't want to endanger it. I don't want to make it feel threatened and lash out at me. But you were having that with a vengeance there, because this was one clearly fresh out of captivity that was much more unpredictable, because it was learning the ropes and getting to, coming to terms with being out and fending for itself and so you were noticing that kind of remonstration that it was demonstrating and the fact Mm -hmm. that it wasn't scared of being it was almost used to being by humans but by doing that even though Mm -hmm. it might not have meant to be dangerous it was in potentially endangering you guys well exactly really we were dealing with an animal that that looks like it in a domestic environment or in a circus environment all of a sudden Perhaps for the first time, having life in the wild, not knowing how to handle it, but hearing human voices around and therefore trying to sort of interact with us. But most of this being pitch black because it really is in a, uh, you know, a, a renewable energy house. So there was limited lighting around. So it was really a very, very bizarre experience because most of the time we were really having to use our sense of of sound. It was an auditory experience that was going on in the dark. And so therefore it was actually very scary for a lot of people. And I know that you gave us some excellent advice uh, to wear torches on our heads if we go out at night and to carry a stick. And we made that absolute policy. And, you know, I said to people, if you're inside the house, you know, during the day, it's okay. Obviously, we stay close to the house. But as soon as it starts getting towards dusk, that's when, you know, if you're going outside, carry a broomstick with you. And and scan with the, with the beams for eyeshine before you do anything. Yeah. Just like you would be on, on camp in South Africa or whatever with leopards around or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, also to get it into perspective, we had people stay that had been regularly capturing wild animals or wild cats in in South Africa. Mm. And they were sort of saying to us, it's so easy to be sort of Hollywood influenced, as it were, with any kind of wild animal. Mm. You know, important to listen to to what the experts say, you know, important to take an objective view and and, and just realise that people go out in the bush and sleep in tents. Mm. You know, this happens every day. It's very rare that you do hear of anything really going wrong. Yes. So yeah. we were behind thick walls, you know, and I know, I know in a situation like this, it's always different if the animal actually gets inside the house. 
we just had policies to always close the doors, always carry sticks at night. You know, if we were going out at night and coming in, we would drive as close to the house as we could get, which was very close, and go in. And we just accepted that we were coexisting yes. with this with this animal. And you could see the reaction of guests, because some guests wanted to stay longer because they thought it was exciting, and others, even in the same family, wanted to leave as soon as they could. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there was one, one one girlfriend insisted that a stick went to bed with her and her boyfriend. <laughs> you know, so, boyfriend one side of the bed, her the other, and a stick in the middle. Oh. Um, you know, and the following day she she wanted to leave, so she was an Airbnb guest. Um, so I think this was not, not the um, standard accommodation on Airbnb that she'd expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need to hear about the police. That your your sort of interactions with the police. So what happened is, is we we'd had by now various encounters. There were local people that had seen it. Um, a few local people. The local mayor had seen it and he'd actually tried. In fact, while you and I were skyping one night, he tried to shoot it, but fortunately missed. So there was definitely a sense of concern amongst a few people. Most people were just like, no, 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 I don't believe any of it. It's all a load of nonsense. That's what most people thought. And so our thinking was, well, we'll explain to you the situation. Either believe it or don't believe it, but it's up to you. But we've given you the information. That's, you know, our due diligence here. So what happened was I thought by this time, whatever was there, it's time to go and speak to the police about it. So it was obviously quite a big move because English expat living in Spain, not speaking fluent Spanish, but speaking enough to communicate. But obviously, having to communicate a pre off the wall subject. So I turned up to the police station and they said, Oh, you know, you're going to have to go to another police station. So they sent me to another one and I had bits of evidence with me. I walked in there and immediately I, w- I was being interviewed by six policemen at once in Spanish. I explained it as best I could, pulled the evidence out, showed them all it, of it. And out of the six in the room, five of them were completely on my side and believed it and one of them was completely not and he was just saying oh it's all a load of nonsense and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so but fortunately the five others won him over they decided to sort of come up and refer it on to specialists to come up and, and interview us and which is what happened so i mean they sent various people up various placement up and in a way it sort of became a bit of a joke with the volunteers we'd have quite a long night out because it's hot there you know sitting out quite late at night going to bed and then at sort of eight o'clock in the morning it'd be pete the police are here again so and it'd be another police department so we had you know that happened probably about six or seven times so i was going down giving statements and things and one morning um i was giving a statement and the police had sort of said to me this is really difficult for us to deal with you know there's 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers of land out the back of here we don't know if it's transient even if we tried to catch it we may well fail i said yes i realize that it's very very hard to capture these and so the police said we're just going to really observe the process we're not really going to take major action with this which and I just said, well, I fully understand. You know, it's exactly what the other people I've spoken with, that's what they think. There doesn't really seem to be a very obvious danger, especially as we had noticed that the, the cat had actually started to get used to being in, in this environment. But then one evening, I was interviewed by the Guardia Civil, uh, which is another police department from another station. And we were standing there in the big riverbed area outside the front of the building. And it was towards dusk. And there was one of the policemen was sort of on side, sort of, yeah, going along with the story and believing it. The other one was extremely um, 
cynical. He was just, you know, arms crossed and just like sort of shaking his head saying, no, 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 don't believe any of this. But then what happened was my dog then started barking really aggressively, like like this, repeatedly. Now, the policeman that was kind of not really believing this turned around and looked at the dog and said to me, does your dog, you know, normally do this? I said, never. And then all of a sudden, the penny dropped. It's dusk. The dog's barking like this. He's trying to warn us all. It's coming. So I said to the police, it's coming. Prepare yourself. And they did. They grabbed the guns, pulled them out, grabbed the torches. And literally within two or three seconds, it was charging towards us. And the police said, hide behind the car to me, which, you know, <laughs> using a police car as a shield in this situation, it wasn't an ideal scenario. But they, they ran off, literally, they ran up both um, up the Rambler with the guns out, with the torches out, and it turned around and it just shot off. So, and when they came back, you know, I sort of said to them in Spanish, I said, non-native species, correct? And they said, yes, non-native species, correct. You know, and after that, it was in, in a way a bit of a game changer because then the police had actually witnessed it. Yeah. They knew it was real. I remember you saying that uh, before that, the cynical one was giving you quite a bit of intimidation and he was actually sort of saying, well, where is it then? As if you could conjure up a cat Ooh. out of the wilderness behind you. <laughs> but then, then on cue, it did come anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, I think the funny thing is, though, is that the that he was sort of, you know, where is it? But I think all the other police at that particular police station had actually talked him around to it. Mm. And then there was a, a whole group of cyclists. Um, I don't know how many, but about 12 or 15. And they'd all witnessed it about 20 miles away. So, you know, they were mountain biking in the hills and they all saw it. So after that, and the, the police were actually very good. You know, they came back to me and they said, look, we've really got absolutely perfect witness situation now it's been cited by multiple people all together all at the same time we know it's real but again we're not going to do anything about it because we don't perceive it as a risk if it becomes a risk if something happens then obviously we'll do something but mm. you know we just we have to just consider that, that it's benign you know in this situation but they were sort of gently passing the baton to you to take responsibility if anybody needed to take responsibility which you felt under pressure then because right. you felt that if you were going to have to deal with it you were going to have to get it right mm-hmm. and if you messed up there could be consequences mm-hmm. which is exactly Exactly. I mean, there was a slight difference in the way that different police were, because they've got different departments, but the way that they were relating to this. And because they knew that I had loads of contacts in the cat world and et cetera, et cetera, they were like, well, you know more, more about it than us. It's your problem. You deal with it. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, you know, some of them were saying that. So it was, I was like, okay. So we did actually get a cage in and we were, we spoke to a Dutch organization and they said, well, look, if you, if you catch it, you can bring it to us. We um, have massive enclosures in Spain and in Holland. We're a really big organization. We'll help you with this. So they were completely on board. But then another police department came along. And what happened was actually, ironically, the goat herder, who <laughs> actually, there was another episode where, actually, where we had, had actually saved him from the cat because it was up on the hillside. And, and we'd all whistled really loudly and the cat ran off. But however, he kind of turned on us because we had the cage there. We were, um, you know, prepared to catch to catch this with professional help. 
And he was sort of saying to the police, well, no, I don't like him having them having this cage here. It's in a national park. You're not meant to have a cage. And so he sort of made a bit of a, a big deal about it. And I, and I sort of said to him, look, we're actually trying to help you. But he didn't see it like that. And in actual fact, what he did was he instead he gave up goat, goat herding. Mm. <laughs> Which, um, it, so it was a bit of an irony, really. There was us trying to help the village and help the situation and even help the police. Yeah. But whilst one lot of police wanted us to do that, another lot were like, hang on a minute, we're not sure about this, but based upon the complaint from him. Mm. So it ended up being two steps forward, three steps back. And there was, there was something else that had happened, which actually was very curious. And that was that it started giving us gifts. It started bringing us birds in the way that a domestic cat does and lizards and there was we'd heard some vocalizations and in the early days it was this sort of and it before charging which was like a, a mock charge mm. sound yeah. whereas afterwards we were getting the sort of out breath yeah. which was just like a relaxed sound which you know I, More I like chuffing yeah yes chuffing exactly yeah. i explained that to you and you said you know that means kind of i'm okay you're okay in um you know cat language yeah. Let, let's have a stress-free passing of the ways yeah yeah which kind of fitted exactly what was going on you know i mean it, it, it had gone from certainly being a cat that was incredibly stressed behaving in really bizarre ways charging towards us and all sorts of things damaging the property to actually just accepting us as being there and us accepting that, that, that the cat was there and just allowing it to be. Yes, yes. So it was actually, it was actually a, a good experience in the end. Yes. Can we quickly go to, to the, the cage issue? On the, on the cages, uh, when, when somebody puts a cage out, um, I'm always concerned that the cage will, cap, will capture anything but the target species. So it, will ca- it could get crows or squirrels yeah. or other people's dogs or whatever. Yeah. And you had a South African visitor who'd actually captured lepers on his uncle's or dad's farm or something. And he made a very good point about using logs, didn't he? Because which you, did, you were about to before I think the police sort of warned you off having the cage but um, because the cat can cl- clamber up the logs on and get in, into the cage but if it's baited enough which is another challenge anyway but other animals won't be so adept at, at uh, scrambling up the logs so that's an interesting tweak mm-hmm. to, to the to the trapping scenario and, and also a, a tip that I learned from South Africa was just animate the area where you want to draw the cat into by hanging up feathers like partridge or pheasant feathers yeah. to, to so it's got something it's yeah. a movement of its prey to, to draw it so you were trying things like that well you? That, that was it that's that's exactly right we were baiting with feathers and fe- feathers and marmite mm. um which had both worked brilliantly so we had actually created reactions from it by putting the feathers on because we we all the time we had the cage there it was always closed we never ever actually used it in order you know we were trying to climatize um, the cat to the cage as being a safe place. And the other factor is, is that we figured that if it had actually come from the circus, which we really genuinely believe that that's exactly where it had come from, then to some extent it would probably be you know, absolutely dying to go back into the cage mm. um, just because that would mean that it would be getting regular food. And, you know, it's very easy for us to kind of anthropomorphize that a, an animal, as soon as it gets out of a uh, relationship with humans, wants to just run away and be in the wild and never have contact with humans again perhaps that's true but equally 
we believe just based upon the behavior of this cat that there was some level of security that it was getting from actually being around humans yeah. and although it liked being wild it liked being in contact with humans too yeah these are tricky judgments aren't they very tricky also i mean i think you felt that there are some situations where trapping and removing an animal from the wild is ethically dubious i mean here that wasn't quite the case was it because it was presumably the only one it wouldn't have found a mate and there wasn't a lot there's not a lot of small medium or large mammals in that landscape is there for it to predate on um so i was reckoning it was probably largely getting lizards on the rocks which would be quite easy for a, a cat to swipe and get and you wouldn't need sort of much training in that Maybe we could go on to the, the wild boar incident in a, in a second then. Yeah. Well, so what happened was whilst the one of the police interviews was going on one morning, two hunters turned up and the, the police had been sort of trying, you know, keep this all a little bit kind of quiet under wraps for us, please. Because obviously tourist town, we don't want holiday makers, you know, um, obviously choosing not to come within 100 kilometers of, of the area because they have got a fear of, of of this cat so you know we were certainly on side with that and um so whilst that kind of conversation was going on with the police they were like we're just kind of monitoring this we're just assessing it we're using your help and your experts as well but let's just not make um, a big deal out of this let's try and keep the whole thing quite quiet so that was a conversation one morning and as that conversation is happening pickup truck pulls up outside and two local elderly men get out um one carrying a gun because you know they they carry guns quite a lot there in that in that environment and so they they walk up to the house i've never spoken to them before but i had seen one of them before so i knew that he was a local character and so i i said to him you know what do you want and he said oh you're the guy that's had these experiences with this with this big cat aren't you and I said, well, there are a few things going on. We're not exactly sure. You know, it's all, we're just sort of looking at all the information at the moment and all the evidence. And, and he said, no, 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 no. He said, we've had a really serious encounter with this last night. It happened right outside of our house. What happened was there was a charging of lots of animals. And all of a sudden there was a screaming and a wild boar had been basically cut in half by this cat. Um, And so he had been in his house, one side of the track, and his friend had been in a house the other side of the track, which is like 150 metres away, and they both heard it. It's 12 o'clock at night, came out with their guns, and when they got there, they'd obviously disturbed it. So they saw it in, in the car lights, and it basically ran off, but it ran off with half the prey. So what it had done is it had cut the boar in half and taken taken it away. And so he so as soon as we said that, the police were overhearing all this, and all of a sudden it was like, quick, jump in the cars, let's go down to the site. So we we got in the cars, went down to the site, and there were it was really obvious what had happened. There was half the wild boar there. Now, bearing in mind, in this area in Spain, there's lots of kind of semi-wild dogs lots of cats, there's foxes around. If, if ever there's any kind of um, carrion in, in the, um, the riverbed, animals will take it. They will always, you know, it'll be cleaned up immediately. And this was just sitting there. So, you know, that was the first sign. Um, but then you can see drag marks and then you can see paw prints and then you could see paw prints with claws out and, and blood. 
So it, it obviously what happened is is they turned up, it taken half of it away, and um, eaten it. You know, in a, in an olive grove. Mm. And from that, we got some really good prints, actually. So we, we got the Plaster of Paris kit out. And <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that the noises of the dispatch were prolonged and that uh, mm-hmm. chimed with our thoughts that this wouldn't be an efficient killer uh, because it hadn't been taught to sort of kill medium-large prey. Exactly. And so it, the dispatch wasn't an easy thing for the predator or the yeah. prey in this situation. But that was a turning point. Didn't this guy actually realise then that if you messed up shooting, uh, trying to dispatch this cat amongst the local shooters who wanted to try and do that, it was very dangerous? And didn't mm-hmm. he call call his men off? Because wasn't he one of them involved in the local um, hunting association? He was. He was the head of the hunting association. Yeah. And so what? It, so it was a really. It was a very difficult situation because because the police were kind of putting a bit of responsibility onto myself with it to make assessments and to get information from international experts. But yet there was obviously this issue of um, this would be the prize kill for the local hunters. So they'd love to come here and, uh, you know, or come to the place and actually, uh, and actually successfully hunt it. So it was a case of it really is better to keep the story under wraps. And they were very responsible. Although he was head of the hunting association, he just said, you know, I see this is a very different situation to, to hunting other animals and there's no way we're going to keep this under wraps and I'm going to use all my influence in the area to just make sure that there is no hunting going on. Yeah. However, good. I was going in, in, there were bars that I stopped drinking in because one of them was very much a, a bar with quite a few hunters in and they kept questioning me on this and I knew that they were just trying to get information out of me in order to come up themselves and and try and hunt it, which is obviously what I was wanting to avoid. And part of the the idea of having the cage there was actually a bit of a red herring to just sort of say to people, no, 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 we're dealing with it. We're conservationists. We're dealing with this, et cetera, et cetera, um, to give them a red herring so they didn't think, oh, well, it's still running wild. We have to deal with it and look after this situation. You know, our family's welfare depends upon it. Yeah. type of thing yeah, yeah. which was the type of justification that could have been going on yeah. so but then there was a, another instance that ha- incident that happened which was quite extraordinary which sort of showed how concerned in a way the whole area was about the the presentation of this situation there was a local businessman with um, an internet shop and he he decided for a joke to you know photoshop a um a, a jaguar onto a local environment which everybody would know and he just put it up on his facebook page as a joke oh look this is what we found by the water tank and a few people put put comments but um the police didn't find it funny at all so they they really did take it very seriously they were worried that he that could be taken the wrong way and could affect visitors um attitudes and visitors not not staying in the area is that right yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, okay, the fine was a lot, but I, but I, I agree with them. You know, there was no point really in trying to make a circus of it. Yeah. 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 It was really about keeping responsible and dealing with it with it. Exactly. Is there really analyzing? Is there a danger? My assessment at the beginning was with the, with the bizarre behavior. At first, it certainly seemed that way, but later on, it was obviously using the whole territory it found its feet, it adapted to that environment. And there's actually a friend, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Peter Taylor, 
that came along and stayed the night and we had a, a discussion and and his view as well was that really it's it's okay for it you know mm. if it's okay with you it's okay with the police most of the villagers don't believe it a few do but they're not too bothered mm. the hunters clearly don't want to hunt it um it's not really doing any harm yeah I was picking up the various different pressures and stresses on you from different the different parties involved. And that was very <laughs> wearing for, for you at the time, I remember. But also my main thought and my main advice, and you, I think, found this partly helpful and partly unhelpful, was to say, Peter, if you do, down the line, need to influence anybody about rehoming this cat or for whatever scenario to try and get it mm-hmm. with camera traps, to try and absolutely get it uh, comprehensively to say, say to people, this is it, this is what I'm talking about, here's a picture of it. Uh, and I know that we struggle with that anywhere where these animals yeah. are, are out. And I, I thought you may have a chance there. And But of course, you found that, again, the cheap camera traps are rubbish and it's very difficult, uh, particularly at night where, where they don't illuminate well. And so... Although you did try with the camera traps, it was mm-hmm. um, very challenging, and you didn't really. All you got was the the local dogs, yeah, and, and a small cat. Yes, yeah, we we yeah, exactly. And I mean, there were a few sort of mysterious photos that we got, and we just looked at them and thought, "What on earth is this?" You know, mm. we we didn't find what we wanted at all. Yeah, it was actually a lot of work going out because I mean, it is the hottest part of Europe, and I mean, this was mainly unfolded right in the middle of the summer. So I mean, it's forty degrees, and we're running around sort of setting up cameras just before dusk and yeah i mean we we did a lot of it with the volunteers but that landscape it is so rocky um and there's so much grass is there that moves so the cameras are getting set off all the time there's so many insects so you'd end up after the day or after the week sitting there looking through thousands of photographs of of moving grass and insects, yes. you know, and you'd yeah. actually be lucky if you've got a domestic cat or a dog, mm. but we didn't get our big predator. So, and, but then it was a very strange situation because on one hand, there was this sort of thinking, you know, empirical science, we need the proof, we need the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, it was, well, if we have that evidence, then all of a sudden people are going to feel like they've really got to take responsibility for this. And it creates a difficult, different, different situations that could end up causing hunters to get the wink to go out there and and try and hunt it yeah so in a way we knew it was there we didn't we kind of we wanted the evidence but we actually didn't want the evidence yeah because of the implications of getting the evidence yes it it would have not it would have nudged you to a different scenario where you might want to take some action but but even then the whole business of capturing it in a cage and then having it in a cage totally stressed out and they can damage and injure themselves, particularly their canine teeth when they're in a cage and become very dangerous if they're not settled. Yeah. Um, so that was a ball game, which I think nobody would have easily wanted to get into. So again, yeah, these pressures were just extreme for you all the time. And for me, it was constantly, I, I could really reflect on how different your situation was from property owners back in Britain, where the animals rarely misbehave rarely pose a threat and are rarely showing that they're stressed and you had very different situation with what seemed obviously freshly out of captivity and freaking out a bit initially Mm -hmm. but but again your observations on its behavior i remember you were saying that you'd sometimes go back to britain for a couple of months and when you came back you felt 
there were signs that it had sort of reclaimed the place and it had sort of taken the opportunity to be closer yeah. to the building while you were away. Exactly. You know, it, it did this, it would break branches, thick branches high up that, um, you know, just in order to mark its territory, as it were. But it would, it would sort of do that closer to the house. And we'd see paw prints closer. And there was a dustbin because when, when you came out, I think you, you saw the dustbin. And I mean, this is extraordinary because it was it was like a normal old style um, English plastic dustbin mm. that had been smashed from the inside outwards. Yeah. So something with great strength had put it put it a pour inside and and pushed it outside. So it was it's almost like you know misbehaving because we weren't there. Yeah. 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 Um, mm. It was it was very strange. And I mean, we really did you know have developed some sort of relationship and. I'd go outside and just hear it breathing, mm. um, probably about 30, 40 feet away from me. Yeah. And it could hear me in that environment. I mean, I know we sort of sp- spoke about this, but it was a case of if we ever did come up a- against it or directly with it, to be very human, <laughs> mm. you know, and to be larger than life yes. in that situation. Sure. Um, not to be timid, not to be belittled and not to run from it, essentially, to to basically stand stand your ground no matter what. That was always very much drilled into everybody that was there. Um, That's really sort of what we felt we had to do. But, I mean, there was was one very funny night, actually, when we were out on the patio, we were sitting there, and it was quite early on in this, and we sort of said, we'd figured it out that it had come from the circus, or we were pretty sure that it had come from the circus. And somebody said, well, if we happen to hear it, maybe we should all start clapping and cheering, which is what happened. You know, it didn't happen that night, but the following night we were sitting out there, there were about seven or eight of us, and we heard it all charging and running around. So instead of running in the house, we were just sat there and clapped and cheered and whistled, and, and it calmed down. it it just calmed down so yeah I mean it was extraordinary our word of the week for this episode is Zirik spelt X-E-R-I-C and Zirik is derived from Zeros the Greek word for dry and a xerocol is a desert animal, so an animal adapted to live in arid conditions. And I ought to quickly emphasise we are not talking about big cats. Big cats are not xeric animals. A xerocol is an animal which must overcome lack of water and excessive heat. And they include animals like camels and the fennec fox, the fox which lives in the desert with its unusually large ears, and those are for dissipating heat. Some xerocols will burrow out of the heat or be mainly shade-dwelling, and many will be nocturnal or crepuscular, active at dawn or dusk, to avoid daytime sun and high temperatures. And I've simply used xeric to talk about the challenges that cats have in terms of hydration in dry environments. And as we heard, it seemed evident that the stranded panther which Peter encountered was seeking out water around his house. Almeria, where Peter was, is a semi-arid landscape and the vegetation could be described as xeric scrub. And across their range in the world, leopards do live in exactly these type of semi-arid, semi-desert conditions. And so do pumas in parts of North America, such as the drier, arid zone states like parts of Utah, New Mexico, California and Arizona. 
and leopards and pumas will, of course, drink regularly from fresh water sources if they have the chance. My friends in America tell me to put my camera traps here in Britain, watching over places like farm ponds and the like, where there is a fresh water supply and which may lure the cats to that water. But these cats we're talking about, leopards and pumas, can tolerate drier conditions because they get some of their hydration from the water content of their prey and they will even take advantage of morning dews on vegetation. This is simply another example of just how versatile and adaptable leopards and pumas are, as we keep saying in the podcasts. But the dry conditions must have been a particular struggle for the cat around Peter's property if it was fresh out of captivity, as we suspect. So, there's our word of the week, Cyric. At this time when it occurred you weren't aware of the British situation really Peter that that, that there were cats being seen reported in Britain and they were really elusive and stealthy and semi-invisible but what are your reflections now on on that one compared to the British situation and has it made you think about what we're handling here in Britain? Yeah well I I think in a way there's a real there is a real parallel um, and it's only because, yeah, you're right. I, I came to understand and to learn this through having the experience myself and then researching your work and looking you know, at other cases that, that you've had in the UK and looking at the surveys that you know, you've collected at shows and events and things. And just it really did make me realise there's a lot of people that have had parallel experiences or similar experiences in the UK. But I think the, the real interesting parallel is that the UK situation could have happened perhaps or certainly been influenced from the time in the 60s, 70s, when all of a sudden there was a clampdown on animal or animal licenses were enforced in the UK for wild animals. And that seems to be what was, you know, what happened in this situation with this circus one in Spain. Somebody was keeping this animal, all of a sudden they could get into trouble for having it. And they just decided to let it go, and so yeah, I, I you know do 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 see the parallels, but certainly I'm I'm a lot more aware of it in the UK now, having spoken with you so much, definitely. Mm. Yeah, and what what do you think about the general situation of big cats in the UK? Are you okay about it, or do you feel that we're too complacent, or do you got got any views on it? Well, I think that the, you know when there are, well, again, I'd, I'd look at I'd look at a parallel. I mean the. The truth is, is that the overall, there wasn't a procedure in Spain of how to deal with the, with, with the situation there. I sort of get the feeling that it's, you can only pick up so many anomalies and say, well, that's an anomaly, there's another anomaly, there's another anomaly, until you actually say, well, we've actually got a pattern going on here. There's actually mm. some consistency to this situation. We need to come up with some kind of way of, of, of dealing with this. Which So I believe that the UK should have have that i mean i don't know whether the uk has but you know a, a methodology of, of dealing with these with these sightings because there's just been so many of them and i think it should probably be the same in spain as well mm. i feel that's best done with an independent body rather than a government body because a government body will do it with different agendas or different pressures mm-hmm. and maybe if you do it more independently with all the key stakeholders chipping in you can come to a less stressed and a less pressured mm-hmm. perspective in dealing with it um, and, and helping yeah. the police. I think often it's the police that need help and they haven't got the resources or the expertise. 
Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it ends up becoming a bit of just a grey area for everybody, as it were. And it really needs somebody to essentially grab the bull by the horns, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm. But but in an accountable way. I, mean, I, I do stress, I think it has to be accountable. Absolutely, Rick. And, you know, the, 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 the real difficult, the crux of the matter in Spain, the difficulty we had really was down to anaesthetic. Because the organisation, you know, big reputable organisation, um, they wanted to take it in. They were too far away to send anybody that could administer um, anaesthetic. And if, you, if you're unable to anaesthetize the, the animal, then it's, it's just it's unrealistic trying to catch it. So vets, local vets, weren't able to do it. They weren't qualified to do it. So really, that's why the situation carried on. And I think it's, it's a case of all the, all the pieces need to be able to be put together in order to be for a situation to be to be dealt with yeah and um but the resources and the logistics are severe for that yeah yeah exactly and and also even the time factor because you don't know if you can catch it or even when you can catch it and obviously you'd have to have people on call and so i mean it it just it, it does become a very complicated situation but i think i certainly see huge value in what you what you're doing in gathering the information, gathering the data, because in a way, what we were doing on a very local basis, just with our particular situation, you're doing on a national basis in the UK. I should say, not just me, there are many other good people, you know, helping, you know, doing, yeah. doing what they can. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was just going to say, but through that information, that enables governments or, you know, police or councils or whoever to be able to make better decisions, you know, yeah. and, and to understand yeah. the situation better, I believe. Yeah, I, I think also that what we have in in Britain also is uh, a, a significant segment of people are interested in the mystery, in the mystique, in the utter wildness of these animals, yeah. and that this is coming at a time when we're having this reaction to a consumerist lifestyle, and so a portion of people long for that sort of mystery and that wildness to be there, and this is happening by default with these wild card big cats whereas you haven't got that in a place like spain it is just this one rogue animal which you know people are going to have different views on uh, and it's an isolated yeah. example so you haven't got that sort of rewilding connection well no but you know what rick to, to, to put a broader perspective on it the rewilding part has never left you know because the the, the people there are very much connected to their environment um yeah Sure. They 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 didn't really seriously watch TV for <laughs> until sort of like the last fifteen years. Going out, um, planting, harvesting—it's all the knowledge of nature. They all know all of the plants, all of the trees, the uses, the benefits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not a case of having to rewild. That mm. knowledge is already there. Yes, and it's it's that's already part of that culture. And in fact, it's it was very interesting because you know if you did a little comparison to the UK. How many people think Morris dancing is really cool? Um, some do, most don't. However, the equivalent over there of their local traditional uh, practices, rituals that go back thousands of years, all the young people, they really do, they, they connect to that and they've never yeah, they left, want to embrace lost it. that. Yeah. So it's sort of the, this, the idea of a culture being connected to the local environment is is very much still there but how they yeah. connect is obviously in different ways i mean some become hunters and some 
keep olive trees. Yeah. So there. But this won't. There, there won't become a legend. There won't become a legend of the mystery of the Catavalmia from this. Well, <laughs> I think the yeah the I think the cat itself did become a bit of a legend over there. I mean, certainly, um, you know, a lot of people were, were... But it won't become a widespread sort of um, thing which is on postcards or um, celebrated. It will just be low-key. Yeah, I think so, because in a way, it's fear of the tourism industry. Although this is, yeah. the, this is the irony. I mean, you know, if you were, nobody's going to you know, not go to Bobmen more because of the beast of Bobmen, you know. Um, yeah. But um, it's it's a case of over over there was they were a little bit more c- concerned about it and um, yeah. or concerned about the possibilities of how that would affect tourism. Whereas I I mean I had a lot of people say this is what has attracted me here. I think it's fantastic that there's you know, this this animal living like this and um, and the fact that we don't have all the information on it makes it even more fascinating. Yes, sure, it plays both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that area, I mean, I do have to say, having spent 14 years living there, in terms of wildlife, in terms of the, the, the underwater environment there, in terms of the, the, the volcanic um, landscape, it really is a very, very special place. It's a very mm. natural place. It's, it's lovely. Yes, it's under-celebrated. It's, it's under-discovered. It, it is. And for people that really like their wildlife or people into birding, it's, it's a little gem. It really is. Um, so that's, yeah, that's my little plug for Almeria, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter, how would you feel if there was some kind of closure on, I mean, often part of the mystery or part of the sense of what goes with the territory on incidents is that there's never any closure because people don't know yeah. whether the, the animal in, in the, that they've seen or they've heard about has been killed or has died out or is continuing in its elusive way. How would you feel if you knew there would been some closure that uh, a local hunter had shot it and and that was it you know would you, would you feel a sense of disappointment at that perhaps oh definitely that would be hugely disappointing yeah it would be it would be a great shame and uh, i mean i don't I, because for, for the last year or over the last year there was no contact so mm. i d- i don't know whether it is actually still there or whether it had expanded its territory so Let's put it this way. I think any hunter would have a very hard job trying to find it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, for, 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 two, for two years, it had really made itself known on occasion, regularly turning up, probably about once a month. And, but then after that, we didn't hear from it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, certainly it, was, it became um, part of that landscape. And a lot of people didn't, had never heard of it or they'd heard something of it. And in actual fact, Rick, there were other stories from the area that um, had been earlier stories. For example, you know, in the town 10 kilometres away, lots of people had their cats go missing and years before, and they believed that that was a, a big cat. Mm. Um, and then 100 kilometres away, the mayor of a town, a small town called Burha, had actually seen a what he believed um was a jaguar uh, a black one i should say a black one yeah yeah and whether it was a jaguar or not on film is obviously up for discussion but mm. you know he believed that that's what he saw and so that you know there had been there were also that there was meant to be um a, sh- a shaman there who was meant to have had a leopard at some point so from south mm. america so i'm oh, sorry a jaguar um yeah, yeah. 
so you know there's quite a lot of local folklore as it were with with cats yes and we get this yeah and um i know that the question i've had since um starting the podcast is are there exotic cats escape from captivity and and potentially breeding in other european countries where people presumably would collect cats well the answer is in terms of credible press reports that seem to have some consistency and validity to them is that yeah, elsewhere in Spain, there's there's been incidents. In Italy, there's been cases. In yeah. France, certainly in France, there's been footage, very very interesting footage a couple of years ago in a car park of, of a leopard-like mm-hmm. cat with a very leopard-like tail or even a puma. You couldn't see because of the light of the, of the photograph. But also Germany. In Germany, there were orders from the uh, one of the state's government departments to shoot it if, if it was seen again. The hunters were you know on, on alert and were, were said, if, if anybody gets the chance to, to take this out, then please do because this is a rogue, wild, you know, escaped black panther. Mm-hmm. It does seem that it does happen in other countries in Europe. Whether any of them have have been out to the degree that they could breed on is another matter, like, like we feel is very much happening in Britain. So I think you just got a little sort of, you got a little uh, snippet of it in your neck of the woods in Almeria. Peter, any final point you want to make? Yeah, I'd just in a way like to sort of round it off by saying that, the, you know, the original purpose of us going out there was to observe this process start to finish in a very natural environment without water electricity mobile phones etc and we put all of that in but in a way nature came and really taught us a whole load of findings but additional findings because of the the episodes with the cat so that's all really useful information we learned to to make do with minimal resources and to to, to really um, harness the environment in new ways and ways that have been forgotten and a lot of that is the old knowledge that, for example, you put blankets in front of windows and if they're wet, that produces a type of air conditioning in a really hot environment and that sort of thing. And you know, this type of archaic information is more and more important now, you know, when there are natural disasters so that people can actually have new answers and have new solutions. Yes, sure. And I know to go off topic quickly, you designed this amazing little um, structure Mm -hmm. called a a bubble home. I think we'll put a link to that, even though it is off topic. But you were doing that on the land to create a little sort of igloo type dwelling, which is much more secure than a tent for for a situation of disaster or somebody needing a shelter for for months or years rather than just a few Mm -hmm. days after a disaster. And so your experimentation and innovation with basic elemental technology and materials um, was what you were all about there. So to have the cat making you feel even more <laughs> elemental at times was... <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was. It was ended up becoming a great benefit and it very much inspired people. And yeah, with the, the bubble homes, you know, that's an ongoing project as well. And I mean, the idea of having accommodation that's halfway between a tent and a house is something that we've mm. you know, been working on. And uh, how you can, you know, how you can um, actually help homeless people, and also how you can um, help, you know, in in areas where they literally have the whole country levelled. Yes, and also refugees needing places. Yeah, but basically making a new house from the rubble of the old house. This idea of super resourcefulness, of being able to use the natural world in ways that we've forgotten, is actually part of the future. Yeah, coexisting with wild animals is is also a part of that. that I yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, that was the the, the added module that got <laughs> added onto our our uh, university of life experience <laughs> out there. <laughs> 
Brilliant. Peter, we're, we're running out of time. I want to thank you ever so much. It's been a lovely excuse to go beyond Britain again in an episode of Big Cat Conversations. So thanks ever so much for being uh, part of it and telling us all about your experiences in southern Spain. Lovely. Well, thank you very much, Rick. And thanks for all the help and the information and the advice you gave us along the way, which was passed on to many, many people. So thanks for that. And thanks for having me on your show. Thanks, Peter. All the best. Okay, just before we close, a couple of points to make. The first is a pretty sombre one, because we must mention the severe fires in Australia, even though there isn't much more to add to all the concern that's been expressed already through the media. We so much enjoyed hearing about Australia's wildlife from Simon Townsend in episode 10, and now, just a couple of months later, it's desperately sad to hear of the widespread fires and the intense impacts on people and on wildlife through parts of Australia. I actually got a text from Simon today, 9th of January, and he says that his specific area of Victoria is not affected, but he's keeping a watchful eye on the conditions. So, to our listeners in Australia, we hope things recover as best and as soon as possible. And now a brief update on Lincolnshire, where we heard from Wendy and Angela in episode 13. Wendy was our first guest and she described the puma which she encountered around a barn stalking the feral and farm cats and in a nearby lane when she clearly saw it crossing the road. She also mentioned that her husband had seen a black panther close by the farm as well. And now, since that episode, Wendy has reported that her husband had three clear sightings of the black panther in late December. So there is still activity in the area, and Wendy's husband said two of those sightings were near the farmhouse, and one was right across the road in front of him, and he said it was huge. And very ironically, Wendy and I were discussing dash cams in the episode for filming a potential big cat if it came out in front of your car. Finally, for our next episode, we're going to be hearing from some big cat sightings and investigations in Scotland. And our guest for that show also encountered a mountain lion in Canada a few years back. And we'll hear all about that dramatic experience into the bargain. So stay tuned, it's Scotland next. As ever, thanks for listening everyone and take care.